Don't be ashamed to learn things that you need to know. Here's Sexplanations with Dr. Doe. Sexplanations podcast, episode 21, with special host, co-host, Hannah Witten. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to talk to you. Yeah, me too. I didn't realize I was a co-host. That's exciting. Yeah, each new person is a co-host. I, I love I don't it. feel like you're a guest. I feel like we're doing this together. We're in it together. Yeah. I invited you onto this particular episode because I want to look back at four years ago when I talked about my book suggestions And you are one of the most recent authors in the sex education world. You just published your book, Doing It. And so I was hoping that we could talk about doing it. We could talk about other book recommendations because you also make those on a a monthly basis. And then you have a banging book club, which is so cool. You're so, you're like the sex ed book guru. I try to be. (laughs) That's, That's quite a title. I'm into it. (laughs) Is there another title that you would prefer? No, I'll take Sex Ed Book Guru. I'll take that. And for those of you who don't know, I am a clinical sexologist, also a YouTuber like Hannah. Uh, Both of us make sex ed videos online and hope to reach others and inspire curiosity and provide some entertainment with our education. Exactly. Yep. Anything else you want to say about yourself, Hannah? So I come at sex ed and sex and relationships from more of a humanities angle. Um, I did history at university and specialised in the history of sexuality. So that's kind of where my interest kind of was sparked. And yeah, I I guess if you're the clinical one, I'm the humanities one. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. Can you tell them the title of the paper that you wrote for the end of your university time? Yeah, so my dissertation was called... It was called Modern Sex and How to Manage It, the Creation of Sexual Knowledge. I think like the creation of sexual knowledge from 1870 to 1914 in England. (laughs) Maybe not exactly in that order, but that's the gist of it. It was about the emergence, (laughs) like you're a sexologist and I basically studied the emergence of sexology in uh, England and in Europe in like the late 19th, early 20th century. Oh, so beautiful. And you're such a great writer. You think? Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love it. So I want to talk about your book and the books that you like regarding sexuality. But first, special plug to those pledged at the boss level, patreon.com slash explanations podcast. Laura Schuster, Donna Flint, Maddie O'Sullivan, Paul Nixon, and the Millers. I'm going to test your knowledge as part of a question that we do in their honor. Testies, testies, explanations, testies. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm nervous. So, <laughs> oh, you don't have to be nervous. <laughs> I was trying to find out what the oldest sex manual was because I know that's something that you've studied and sexual artifacts are something I'm fascinated by as well, but I can't get a definitive on it. So I'm just going to ask you a question that's open-ended. It's not even multiple choice. Do you know what the oldest sex manual is? I don't, but also how are we defining sex manual as well? Is it like, this is a guide to have better sex or like, this is how you have sex? Or is it a, because a lot of the things that I would call sex manuals that I was studying were like, let's understand human sexuality, but it wasn't necessarily like a how-to guide. Ah, well, I think you're the expert on this. How would you define a sex manual? 
I think the easiest way to define it is a like, here's some tricks and tips, but the way that you contextualize that can be, you know, how, however you want. So like by that, my book could be a sex manual. Yeah. You know, I think it is. <laughs> Um, but the oldest one, I have no idea. Like, obviously, pe- like the easy answer is like the Karma Sutra. But do you know, what? I don't even know when that would have been like originally written. Like it was translated into English in the late 19th century. But that was hundreds, maybe thousands of years after it was like it first came to be. Yes, thousands. It is considered to be from somewhere between 400 and 200 BCE. So there's that one, which I kind of used as a starting point, the Kama Sutra. But then I kept looking and I came across the Turin erotic papyrus. Ooh. I think that's how to pronounce it. And those are ancient Egyptian scroll paintings that show all of these different positions. So if we're going off of your definition of a sex manual, it's those tips and tricks, right, on how to improve sexuality or just demonstrating what that looks like. And that one is from approximately 1150 BC. Whoa, that's so cool. Yeah. So that one's like a thousand years earlier than the Kama Sutra, 3000 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's so cool. People have just always been curious about sex. <laughs> it's just a thing. Yay. <laughs> okay. So Can you tell them about your book? Yeah, sure. So my book, Doing It, is basically Sex Ed 101. It's kind of like what I would want in school libraries everywhere. So it covers everything from like healthy relationships, uh, virginity, contraception, porn, masturbation. Um, It just covers it all. And it's got chock-a-block full of like the facts and the info and then like the advice Um, And then a few anecdotes from myself and then also others who have like personal experiences in certain areas or expertise. Do you have a copy on your person? Uh, I've got my copy upstairs. Am I? I've got. Oh, actually, I have a proof copy behind me. It's not the (gasps) final one, but my actual, actual copy is upstairs. But this is like one of the proof copies. See, that's a benefit of writing a book is that you can have a copy of your book in every room in your house. I have three copies of it. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Okay, so will you read to the audience maybe a part that you're really proud of? Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. And maybe it's changed because this is a proof copy, but I think it'll still convey your writing ability and how sexually intuitive you are. Here we go. I'll read the chapter because I feel like this is like probably one of the most personal chapters, which is chapter three, and it's called Four Generations of Witten Family Sex Ed. So... A part of my research for this book, I interviewed my mum, my grandma, and my great-grandmother, who is 102 years old, about their sex ed experiences and how they learned about sex education. So this is that chapter. I won't read all of it, but a bit of it. Okay, so so Nudie is my gran, and then grandma is my great-grandma, standard is my granddad, and boo is my great-granddad. That's just the key that you need. But you have... You're- <laughs> Your grandma's name is Nudie? Yeah, so her actual name is Judy, but my grandparents didn't want to be called, like, Nana and Grandad or anything. So she just changed the first letter of her name to the N, which would stand for Nana. So Judy became Nudie, and my granddad is called Stan, so he became Standad. (laughs) (laughs) So, and it's also extra funny because her name is Nudie, and my grandparents used to be naturists, so... 
I love it. Yeah. So, you know, that's where I've come from. (laughs) Um, A great beginning. Yes. Um, Okay, here we go. I don't just want to reminisce over my own sex education and look forward to how I would like sex education to be in the future. I also want to look back over generations and find out what their experiences were like. So I sat down with my mum, 53, then my gran, 74, and then my great-grandma, 102, to talk to them about how they learned about sex. Nudie learned about sex from an older girl who lived opposite. I do remember being in Grandma and Boo's bed one morning, and they were obviously preparing themselves to tell me about sex. And I do remember saying, oh, it's all right, Mary's told me. When I asked Grandma how she learned about sex, she said she never spoke about it with her parents and that she learned everything from Boo. I asked her how Boo found out, and she said his family had a maid, and when he was 16, she took him down the cellar and taught him. Oh my God. I can't believe I heard those words coming from my grandma's mouth. Amazing. The interview with my grandma was a bit slow and stagnated because, well, she's old and she couldn't remember much. But my absolute favorite thing she said was when she was talking about Boo. She said they fell in love straight away. He was playing piano and I fell in love. He was going with this other girl, but he left her and went with me instead. And I left the other guy. Juicy stuff. She talked about how experienced he was and mentioned that he always had a drawer full of condoms next to his bed. Grandma was quiet for a while. She needs a long time to think. And then she turned to me with this smile on her face and she didn't look 102 anymore. She looked 25 and she simply said, I enjoyed it. Oh, I love it. So that's my grandma who loved having sex with her husband. (laughs) This is where we come from. Yeah. I, I mean, I came from a little different place. I came from Puritans, but they call themselves passionate Puritans. So, you know, that's a some of the curiosity comes in, I think. Yeah. One of the things that I learned from chatting with Nudie, actually, was about how they used to do pregnancy tests. Oh, yeah. The thing right? about the frog. So she went, she thought mm-hmm. she was pregnant and they were like, oh, well, we've got no frogs. So... We can't do a definitive test, but you've got active nipples, so we think you're pregnant. So she goes home thinking she's pregnant. Her and Standard stop using condoms, and then guess what? They become pregnant. They get pregnant. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I started, I researched this frog thing because I was like, what on earth is this? Yeah, and then it just came up that frogs and uh, rabbits as well, uh, maybe mm-hmm. some other animals, yeah, were used if, if basically they were injected with the, the woman's piss and if the animal went into heat, then the person was pregnant. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, right? Yeah. And they're like, sorry, we're, we're all out of frogs today, so we can't do a pregnancy test. It's amazing that that's how we used to do it and... I remember reading about some slang to do with rabbits as well. Like it was like there was an innuendo that people at the time would use to do with rabbits that was like insinuating that you were pregnant as well. But I can't, I can't remember what it was. Oh, that's really bothered me that I can't remember. Let us know in the comments if you... Something about like the rabbit's dead or something. I don't know. Aww, (laughs) poor bunnies. So you're in England. Yes, I'm currently in London. And you said that your gran lives opposite when you're telling her story. Oh, that what was... What does that mean? So it was my grand's friend, the one that taught her about sex, lived opposite. So it just meant they lived across the road. Uh, yeah. Is that like a... Yeah. Is that a colloquialism? Is that an English thing? 
Yes, she lives, it is. She and that's opposite. what I loved. <laughs> that's what I loved about reading your book is that it wasn't just a sex education lesson. It was also a cultural experience because you were saying all of these words. I, I just know. I just like, don't think so of fun. Yeah, I don't think of it like that at all. And I remember you saying like it was so English. And I'm like, was it? Yeah. <laughs> it just seems normal to me. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was really fun for that reason. And and to see how much of your YouTube personality and then the Hannah I know in person got into that book was so, it was so cool. It's like, oh, this is her. This isn't, you know, ink on paper. This is really Hannah putting who she is and what she thinks onto these pages to share with other people. And I just think that's so spectacular of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's so weird. It's yeah. been like quite a while since the book came out, but it's weird. Books have a much longer lifespan than YouTube videos. <laughs> so, yeah. Right? It's still strange wow. kind of being like, I don't know, like when I see people and even this being like, so tell, like, let's talk about your book or like, how's the book going? I'm like, oh yeah, it's still going. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, it's still going. It wasn't like a video that I uploaded a few months ago and no one's talking about it anymore. It's like, oh no, people are still talking about this. <laughs> Was that scary for you? That's what's scary for me when I think about writing a book is the permanency of it. I think it is scary, but there's a lot in it that I know that if I was going to write it now, I'd write it differently. But I've, But I've kind of come to terms with the fact that most authors must think like this and most authors Mm -hmm. must you know it got published like months and months after I wrote the bulk of it so even by then Mm -hmm. a lot of like the way that I would phrase things maybe or certain things that I had since learned about that I would have wanted to include that I didn't get the chance to I've yeah I've come to terms with it and I don't see it as a fault with the book at all because there's always going to be more times and opportunities and platforms for me to like share the new ideas that I have like is that is it send, right. it's endless you know that's that book is like one thing and that and that book doesn't have to be like definitive in any way you're so gentle with yourself oh it's I taken it, a lot of practice <laughs> good I mean yeah when I think about it I know that I can have a completely different perspective on a topic after a conversation. So not even months down the road, but like just an afternoon later, I have a different position than I would have that morning. And so the idea of writing a book, is very scary to me in that way. And seeing you kind of trailblaze that for me as a friend, it's like, wow, she, we were having this conversation that she's going to write a book and then she wrote the book and then she published the book before I saw her again. That's amazing. Yeah. If it helps to inspire you, that would be amazing because I really want to read whatever you have to say. Oh, Hannah, you're such a sweetheart. (laughs) So who inspired you in your book? Oh, that's a good question. I don't see. I don't think there are any books that obviously like do exactly what doing it does. That's a lot of Mm -hmm. like versions of the verb to do. But in terms of inspiration, I would say definitely you. 100%. 100%. Oh, like the I didn't know that, Hannah. There's a bit in the book where I'm like, this whole chapter is literally taken from Sex Explanations, Lindsay Doe. It's like the bit on like sex and alcohol. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that we yeah. support each other, yeah. but I like hearing that I inspire you. That's <laughs> yeah. great. And then, I mean, Lacey Green was one of like the first uh, sex educators that I watched on YouTube. Um, yeah. Like, 
like what like five years ago I would have started watching her and so she was kind of like my inspiration when I started making sex ed like YouTube videos to begin with and then in terms of like authors and writers oh there's there's like so many because I love um Juno Dawson do you know her Mm -mm. she is she's a British writer she um has written like she writes a lot of YA books but she also has done a lot of like YA nonfiction as well. So she wrote a book called This Book is Gay. Um, and she's written another book on mental health called Mind Your Head. And I just think that the way that she, I don't know, the, I think the way that she like breaks down really like serious, complicated topics for young people is really cool. Yeah, and great titles. Yeah, I know, really great titles. But yeah, so she she's inspiring to me as a writer, definitely. What are your favorite sex books? Ooh, Okay. I feel like I have to check the Banging Book Club reading list because <laughs> most of the sex books I read are for Banging Book Club, which is um, my book club podcast that I have where we read a book about sex and or gender each month and talk about it. And you do that with your friend who's also a YouTuber. Yeah, so I do it with Lucy Moon and Lena Norms. Oh, both of them. Yes. Yeah. Um, the book we're reading currently, I'm actually really enjoying it. It's called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Nagoski, mm-hmm. you're familiar with that book? Oh, huh? Am I familiar? Yes, I have the book. I am familiar with her. I use the book as a resource a lot. I have not read it cover to cover. Yeah, you don't do that. I remember us having a conversation about that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't read books cover to cover very often. Um, See, I have a hard... is an exception. Yeah. I have do you a... have a hard time not? Yeah. I'm like, if I start a book, I, I like see it as a project and I'm like, I have to finish this book. <gasps> yeah. Oh, you're a finisher. I'm a starter. I just like... I'm in, I'm in the book and I want to get like everything out of it. The only books that I've ever like dipped in and out of were like academic books that I had to read for uni. I would just like read the relevant bits. Mm. Yeah. But also for Banging Book Club, I have to read the whole book because then we do a podcast where we talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's I'm great. Like, um, what a cool way to inspire to yourself. Um, but hold on. Let me, I'm just going to like the Banging Book Club Goodreads so I can remember what on earth we've read <laughs> I love uh Vagina by Naomi Wolf we read that last year and that was really like I think for me and the other girls it was really quite shocking for us in terms of mm. like the amount of stuff we didn't know about our own bodies and the connection between like our vulva and our brain and wow and like all of this weird stuff and it, it I think it definitely scared us a lot about some stuff to do with the pill as well Mm. and then yeah and there was like a lot of stuff on like sexual trauma in that book as well which was really interesting so you have a series on your youtube channel hannah witten where you talk about getting off of the pill the hormone yeah so the hormone diaries did you do that after that i think it was or what it no i think i was already off the pill by then it was just it was just like more information i guess for me i've never so in the book one of the the thing that scared us about it was the idea that if you're if you're on the pill and you're like your body thinks that you're pregnant so the type of people that you're attracted to are the type of people who are like secure this person will help me raise this baby that I'm carrying which you're not actually carrying but then if you come off the pill suddenly like that hormone change for some women maybe a lot of women means that they suddenly find themselves like not attracted to their partner anymore and Lena one of the girls who does the podcast with us she experienced this with her fiance who she then broke up with after she came off the pill 
And then it's just like, yeah. So like one of the things that I was really excited by was the fact that I met my current partner whilst I was off the pill. So I was like, me in my natural state with no synthetic hormones finds you attractive. So (laughs) we've got that base covered. Yeah. And now I'm back on the pill and I still find him attractive. So I'm like, we're good. (laughs) Can breathe. Yeah, that is good. Um, but yeah, the Hormone Diaries has been interesting. It's it's a ball ache, to be honest. I don't know why there isn't a male contraceptive yet. Like, it's... Wait, wait, wait. What did you call it? Is this another British thing? A ball ache. A ball ache? What's a ball ache? It's like an ache in your testicles. <laughs> a ball ache. <laughs> it's just a... It's just a yeah, I've never heard that before. <laughs> So sometimes I'm just like, wait, is that not a normal thing that people say? It is in this country. I just need a little buzzer and I'll press it every time you say a word. I don't know, but I I love that it's even sexually related. Okay, so it was it is a ball ache. That's what you say because because it's just like there's so many choices I think for women to make about contraception in our bodies, and we have so many choices, but also so little choice because. Half of them aren't going to agree with Mm -hmm. you. They're either going to give you horrible physical side effects or horrible mental side effects. And navigating that whole world and trying to find the right one for you can take years and can take a lot of physical, like actual time, like physical time of trying out one method for three to six months until you realize it's not going to work for you and changing it and doctor's appointments. If you're not in the UK, like we get contraception for free here. If you're not in a place that's got a national health service, then that's also going to cost you a lot of money. And then also the mental energy, I think. Like I spent so much mental energy thinking about my contraception and it's exhausting. Wow. And I'm just like, I literally just want to click my fingers and just be like, okay, I don't want to get pregnant right now. So good, done. And then click them again and be like, okay, I do now. (laughs) So switch it back on. But then, I mean, aren't they I'm working just, on ugh. something like that for uh, people assigned male at birth? Yeah, that there's, um, what is pessary that goes into their vas deferens, the tube that connects the testicles to the rest of the reproductive so system. To the prostate. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, And so it closes and you can actually flip a switch in your scrotum if you want it to be on or off. Oh, damn. I hope so. Because there's been a lot of trials for like a male pill, a male injection. I did a book event recently for my, my friend Melanie Murphy also wrote a book and I hosted a Q&A that she did. And at one point we got onto this topic and someone in the audience raised their hand and said, they were just like, I just find it ridiculous how the, all this time we've been medicating women and mm-hmm. contraception is often seen as a woman's issue and it's the woman's responsibility when actually a woman can get pregnant like and see that pregnancy through the full nine months like once a year like that is one baby a year that a woman could potentially have right whereas someone with a penis who knows the amount of times that they ejaculate into someone the amount of babies like that's brilliant oh my god yeah my brain exploded. I was like, oh my goodness. Yes, we're thinking about this so wrong. Yes, we are. And I did the calculations. I was like, okay, so what if someone with a penis um, ejaculates once every hour for all of the hours that they're awake 
And every time they ejaculate, that fertilizes an egg. Uh, I mean, that's not how it's going to work. That's but. not how it's going to work. But I was like, but this is like maximum. If someone really <laughs> wanted to. Let's say once a day. Who knows? Or like a different egg a week. Even then, that's 52 babies. Yeah, that's true. Well, and even if you look at technology, you could take a tablespoon of semen and you could wash it so that you're removing the semen from the sperm and then you could use all of those individual sperm and impregnate many, many more people. I mean, that's not what we're doing if we're talking about prevention, but it is possible for someone who produces sperm as their gametes to just create a lot of offspring. Yeah, like people with like female reproductive systems, right? Release one egg a month, sometimes two, Mm -hmm. right? Per cycle. There's a finite amount of time when we can get pregnant. Whereas like every ejaculation, there's some semen. See, that needs to go in your next book. Are you writing a next book? Oh, yeah, kind of. I've not started (laughs) writing it yet. I have ideas. Stuff's happening. Oh, so it'll be out (laughs) next year? Awesome. (laughs) We'll see. This is how fast Hannah moves. It's like, I'm thinking about writing a book. And then a year later, the book is out. And I'm just like, how? How do you do it? Well, see, with doing it, Mm -hmm. I think I wrote the first draft of it in two and a half months. And I think I wrote it so fast because, but everything that's in here was already in my brain. Mm -hmm. And it was like, how long have I been doing this? Like five, six years. It was like five, six years of all of the accumulated research and knowledge that I'd gathered over that time. And so I didn't really have to do much research for it. It was just like the odd bits here and there. And then I just like put it in a book. Whereas now going forward, future books will take more time because I'm like, oh, I've drained myself out of resources and knowledge. I need to replenish that first before I can then like write something new. Oh, I think it's going to be great and easy because you're constantly learning. Yeah, definitely. But I'm, I'm, I'm more constantly, I think at the moment, constantly like passively learning. Mm. Um, but once I have like, once I've solidified what I want the next book to be and how it's going to work, then I can focus more and, and like seek out the, the information that I need and stuff. Um, have I told you that I'm thinking of doing a master's? I saw your video on it and I wanted to do a video response. Oh, really? Where I made my suggestions on how to go about doing that. And then. Oh, can I hear them now? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Ask me questions and I will answer them. Okay. Uh, Okay. Wait, wait, wait. And because we have this activity called the main squeeze. Feel your giggles if you're able. Main squeeze. Where we do kiggles together as a podcast team. For every question that Hannah asks, squeeze, do a, do a kiggle, and then relax and squeeze and relax. Okay, so you have to squeeze for the duration of the question. Yes, for the duration of the question, then you can relax. Okay. I'm going to do it too because I need to do kegel exercises more. Okay. I just only ever do kegel exercises when I talk about doing them. Just a warning, though, that it's very hard to think and <laughs> talk and do them <laughs> I know. at the same time. <laughs> I'm realizing that now. Okay, first question. Lindsay, do you think I should do a master's? Uh, It depends on your intention. I think that if you're thinking about doing it, it is already your intention. I would say that I deter people from it if they're going to get a higher level of education for some sort of credentialing. Like they think that if I have my PhD, then I am better. I can have more money or I can get a 
a bigger job or a promotion or whatever. And I believe that that is true. And it's not the reason that I would seek higher level education. I also wouldn't seek it because I feel like that's the only place to get the knowledge. I think there are lots and lots of ways to have the kind of education that you can get from grad school without paying for it. That is a good point. I think for me, one of the reasons is the credential thing, Mm -hmm. but I it's not like the main one. And I don't, in the way that I kind of think about that, I don't really see it as a negative because it's not like a credential in order to obtain more money, better job, da, da, da. It's like, it's definitely part of like the imposter syndrome thing. Mm. Um, having like something like that. But the main reason is I I work really well in structured learning. I'm not actually a very good independent learner and like, researcher and and things like that I work really well if I have somebody who explains something to me and then sets me homework Mm -hmm. that is like my preferred learning style which is why I think I would would suit I, I if if I was going to uni I would always pick doing like going to a physical uni than doing like an online uni course okay always then you're gonna flourish and it's gonna be great I just don't, especially with sex educators, I don't want them to feel like they're imposters because they didn't do a formal sex education curriculum where they paid $30,000 a year to have somebody teach them things that are constantly changing. I think that you and Lacey and Stevie and Shannon, all of us that do this work are experts because we are doing the work, because we're curious about it and we care enough to find the answers if we don't have them and have the conversations so that we're constantly putting out the freshest information that we can. And I don't think that has anything to do with any of us sitting in a classroom. But I do know you and I know that you have loved being in a university setting. And I would say that my favorite part of both my master's and my doctorate was being surrounded by people that had that similar ambition of like, yeah, let's learn. Let's figure this stuff out. Let's talk about this all day long and all of these ways and then go do homework and research papers. And you're just surrounded by versions of yourself. Yeah, that's one of the big pulls for me as well, because in terms of like finding my people, in terms of like my work social circles in London, I would kind of like think of it as like I've got my YouTube friends, but then there's also the like, the sex ed part of what I do that I don't have a social circle or a network for in London. Mm-hmm. I'm in the like the London sex geekdom Facebook group, but oh. I haven't, yeah, but I haven't managed to like attend any of the like the hangouts yet, but hopefully soon. But yeah, so another reason that I really want to like do a course is like to study something that I'm really interested in, um, but then also like meet the other people who are also interested in this, who aren't necessarily YouTubers because... Like, it's amazing having, like you said, like you and Lacey and Shannon and Stevie, but also you're all in America. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm in Montana. Still in America. I'm I'm very isolated (laughs) as well. Well, okay. Ask ask me another question. We'll do some more muscle squeezing. So I, I don't know how to quite phrase this one, but one of the things that I was toying up when I was figuring out like what kind of course I wanted to do was like, like diverting away from my humanities route and kind of going more clinical or sticking with it and doing like an MA rather than like an MSc or anything like that. But I think I've already made up my mind about this, but I'd be interested. Okay. I'll answer. And then you can tell me what you made your mind up. So 
I did my bachelor's in psych and my master's in health and human performance with an emphasis in health promotion. The reason why I did that and then saved sexology for my doctorate is because between my undergrad and grad, I read a blog post that talked about the importance of getting a really solid foundation in something mainstream before specializing. So if you imagine education like a pyramid, you have this wide base of knowledge, and then as you go up, you become more and more and more specialized. I also um, appreciate that because I think it makes me more well-rounded. What I would do in school is I would take like Native American studies classes or dance classes, uh, French, I studied Russian, and I would take each of those topics and then relate it to sexuality. So I was constantly caring about the information that I was bringing in, but I got to connect it to a larger world perspective. So what I trained myself to do is be able to see the sexuality in everything, and I love that that's my base. So I don't, I don't know if that's what you're asking, but I, what I recommend to students when they are talking to me about their futures is that you study what you care about so that it reinforces you studying because the whole goal is to learn how to learn. You'll, you will never have this finite curriculum on human sexuality and that's it and you'll never have to study more. So the key is for you to learn how to learn about it And you're more likely to do that if you're being positively reinforced by something enjoyable. No, I agree. And that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of envious of the U.S. uh, education system, other than the price of it. Um, (laughs) But you very much so in in the U.K., you you specialize a lot earlier than you do in the U.S., basically. Mm. So like you start narrowing down what you're studying from the age of 14. By the time you're 17, you've narrowed it down to three subjects. And then wow. when, you go to, when you go to university, you literally pick one subject. And, and so in, um, sometimes you can do dual honors, so you do two subjects. But um, like with the US, in, in college, like you spend the first two years kind of like doing whatever you mm-hmm. want, which yeah, is so true. exciting, which is so exciting to me. But we don't get that. You have to, you just, you specialize Um you decide what your like what you would say your major is mm-hmm. before you've even gone because you don't apply to a school you apply to a course so I never applied for different universities I applied to specifically do history at those universities oh. yeah so so yeah I'm I'm very jealous of that system I think it's much I, I agree that I think it is much better to like stay broad for as long as possible until you have to specialize. But yeah, I think I've made my mind up to do a master's, like an MA, mm-hmm. um, just because that's like where my where my strengths are and where my interests are. And I think if I suddenly like tried to go clinical, I'd be like, actually, this doesn't interest me. Like, I think I'd try it and kind of like keep my head above, above water to like know the absolute minimum that I can get by on in terms of like clinical sexology. Mm-hmm. But then I come at it from a more like cultural angle and like some of them uh, and, and doing gen. So the course that I'm specifically looking at in gender and sexuality, because it's a master's, it takes from so many different subject areas. So you could do like Yay! history modules, like literature modules, politics, uh, law. I don't know. There's, yeah. there's so many film, media. 
So it is, it's very much kind of like what you said, studying everything and finding the sex in it. Mm -hmm. That sounds spectacular. When do you start? If I start, which is, I think it's likely, unless something drastic happens in the next year, but it would be like September, October time next year. So in my head, if I'm writing a second book, I'm like, I've got 12 months to do it. <laughs> what? Hannah, you blow my mind. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm all I'm all talk, Lindsay. I'm all talk. <laughs> Whatever. That's not true. You're all action. And I mean, that's great because more power to you. I was like that when I was your age. I think I had finished my doctorate by the time I was 25. And then I opened a sexual health collaborative. It's this beautiful, huge building on the river. And I had like, sexual finesse workshops and my office where I did clinical sexology. And we had... Uh, two different lobbies and a little sex store and a lending library and uh, oh that's so exciting like I want a sex services. store and a lending library yeah it was wonderful I went really quickly when I was young and then I don't think you'll need to do this because you're a very developmentally mature person but I ha almost came to a full stop and had to catch up emotionally to just, you know, bring myself socially to where my peers were because I had just gone so quickly in academia that I I didn't have a lot of those experiences. And I love, I love, love, love watching people's paths and seeing where it takes them and what what they figure out, how they manage it. And yeah, it's beautiful. It's so fun watching you. Oh, that's cool. I kind of want to go to school with you. I'm like, take me, take me. I'll oh start God. in September with you. Yeah, please come. I'll like, I'll send you all of my reading lists and oh yeah, and I'll just, I'll, I'll keep you updated on what I'm learning and I'll send you my essays or whatever. <laughs> that sounds so fun. <laughs> well, yeah. okay. So that brings us to the last thing that we get to do on this podcast, which is give a homework assignment to the audience. Assignments are not always bad, so some sex Do you have any ideas? Oh, my head is so full of like what's in Emily Nagoski's book at the moment. And she has like worksheets in it. It's mm -hmm. insane. This, um, do you use those worksheets? I know. Nah. I just know that her book is amazing. So I assume that it has all of the amazing things. So one of the things that I've learned so far in Emily's book is about your sexual accelerator and your sexual brakes. <gasps> yes. So, it's brilliant. So this is, it's the best metaphor ever. Yes. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So so this has really like helped me understand my like sexuality and, and stuff like that. So um, for the listeners, I'll explain. You can have like really sensitive accelerators. So ex at the accelerator, the things that hit your accelerator, are the things that turn you on. And if things are hitting your brakes, those are the things that turn you off. And you might have a really sensitive accelerator, which means that like a very wide range of things can turn you on, or you might not have a very sensitive accelerator. And it means that you need like quite a lot of stuff to stimulate you in order for you to get aroused. And like all of the things are okay. And the same is the thing for the brakes. You might have sensitive brakes or you might have not very sensitive brakes. Mm -hmm. And the sensitivity of your accelerator or your brakes is kind of very much innate to you. Mm -hmm. The thing that you can change is the context of the things that are either hitting your accelerator brakes or not. So my homework for people would be to, first of all, figure out if you think you've got sensitive 
or not sensitive accelerator brakes. Me personally, I have a very sensitive accelerator and a very not sensitive brake. So, <laughs> so that's me. <laughs> this is one thing that I learn about myself. Um, and then, and then once you've kind of figured that out, a way to kind of figure out, I mean, the way that Emily would put it, it's like just to have a better sex life in general is to really try and figure out what are the things that hit your accelerator and what are the things that hit your brakes. And then if there's anything that you want to change about that, you know, figure out from that. But the first homework is to make a list of the things that hit your accelerator and the things that hit your brakes. Yeah, that's great homework. That was a great description. I feel like that was very long. (laughs) If you need more detail, read Emily's book, Come As You Are. Yeah, do. And and read doing it also. I think your description of that passage is great, though, because it's such a good part of the book. And and it it does explain that whole system really well. And hopefully people will do this homework assignment. Yeah. And they'll have some some of that Hannah Witten gentleness with themselves. Yeah, because there's nothing wrong with you if you've got a sensitive break or you might feel like you aren't getting easily aroused, but actually you don't have a sensitive break. But what you do have is a lot of things that are hitting that break. Mm -hmm. And so then you can start to change those things if you want to. Oh, empowerment lessons from Hannah Witten. Is that the only homework or do you set homework too? I know. I think that's that's enough. That's enough for the people. (laughs) I mean, if they want to do more, by all means, become an A plus student. But I think just doing something in between podcasts or throughout the week, some sort of exercise to put all the lessons that we teach into practice is really important. Because for me, I, you know, I could sit down and I could watch your YouTube videos and that could be it, right? I learn about your favorite things or I find out what's going on with your hormones. But if I don't integrate it into my life in some way, it doesn't have as much meaning. And so I hope that people start taking their screen time and using it to benefit their off-screen time. Yeah. One of the things that I always find with um, work as well, and it works for, you know, like thinking about your sexuality and understanding all of that kind of stuff too, is that the thinking time, the, like the doing nothing thinking time is just as important as the taking action and doing time. So I could mm-hmm. like sit at my laptop and I could edit a video, I could write a blog post, I could answer emails. Um, but then I could just like sit for half an hour thinking and figuring out and joining all the dots or whatever and that time is like still work like you're not doing nothing and so yeah I think it's in terms of like going forwards and understanding like sex and exploring all of that as well like take the time to think like you don't have to do anything you can just like sit and think and like just sit in your own thoughts and figure it out see that's beautiful. That was one of the most valuable lessons I learned in grad school, actually. It's the that, thinking time? Yeah, mm-hmm. because I was feeling really ashamed that my peers were working on their papers and I was just in that thinking state. And I had a professor sit me down and say, no, you you are doing the work. You're a great student. You're doing it. It's just happening in your head. And uh, see, you just gave that lesson to everyone for free. So <laughs> go to school. Don't go to school. Make that choice on your own. There's no pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much for being on this Explanations podcast. Thanks for having me. Just felt like a nice chat between us. (laughs) That's exactly what I want it to be. 
You're an excellent co-host. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, and I also want to thank Cinema Studios and Complexly for the production, Count Boogie for the jingles, and Cara and Parle. I'm still learning. Thank you.